All right, Paul. Yeah, so um, let's get straight in there. I mean, so I think the book title itself is fantastic. It's as pretentious, brilliant, funny, all-compassing as I was hoping for. I mean, to actually, to actually say you're going to tell the whole history of all classical music in one book. But, but the book isn't really, that's partially what the book is, but it's also a very personal journey, isn't it? It's your journey of, of your own music and, and, your, and your own kind of taste and your own take on music encompassing classical music. It is. It's, it's, um, it's a book of my own um, making up a history of classical music, if you like, because I, I, I wasn't sure I was finding the kind of history that I kind of liked. Uh, there was obviously Alex Ross's amazing book, The Rest is Noise, um, which um, uh, covered the 20th century. And, and I always felt it was the kind of book that shouldn't be kept lonely, that it needed some partners. So I, I guess my first act of, of ambition, if we, if we call it that, or pretension, as others say, was to kind of you know create another book in that uh, to go in that company, and also it's a book about how, what it is to write about music, and what it is to always be finding new things. And and sometimes uh, you know I felt that I was, as I was getting older, I was being constantly asked to write about the same old things, and even in my fifties, was still being asked to write about Harry Styles or um, you know K Katy Perry, and and I, I wanted to write about something else. And and in a way, I had to find my own things to write about, and it coincided with other parts of my life that were happening that enabled me to find new music even if sometimes it was centuries old it was new to me and it gave me an opportunity to piece together a history for myself I mean often when you write a book you're, you're learning for yourself all, all kinds of um, subjects you might tackle part of the the process is to find out for yourself so in the process of, of of me learning about the history of classical music I started to piece it together in in I guess some might say an idiosyncratic way but, but, but in a way, what all kinds of truths are, all kinds of histories are, they were originally idiosyncratic, they were originally made up out of nowhere. So, so that's, that, that was the essential sort of start. You know, what about, what would happen if I wrote about, say, Mozart and Stravinsky in the same way I would write about music in the 1970s, which is a personal, emotional, some would say overly rhapsodic style that doesn't actually often exist in the writing about classical music. So you were kind of looking at classical music through a pop cultural lens? I was certainly looking through it because suddenly another thing that happened was all classical music as all music is now was all was available. So you could finally have access to a lot of music, not just in classical, but a lot of things that previously were in dark corners didn't exist. You could conjure up Anthony Braxton on your phone in the blink of an eye, whereas previously to hunt down certain music, you know, it was obviously part of an adventure we all enjoyed and, 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 and wrote about, the, the record shops, the vinyl, but, but this was a new era. And as part of everything else that was available, oddly enough, in the margins, around the edges, so it wasn't the stuff you saw first of all, because that by now was obviously pop music, it was rock music, it was hip hop, it was popular culture. But I found that in other places I could find every piece of classical music that I, that I wanted to hear. Suddenly in a weekend I could hear all of Mozart, and previously that had been difficult to attain and it, it, it you know even when it wasn't necessarily something you wanted to do over time it might have been and it might have been part of the forbidden zone somehow it seemed bricked off suddenly it was all available and it enabled me to do that thing that, that the streaming site which obviously is a curse and a blessing but it enables you to do which is one thing leads to another you know that you know critics like us have tended to be replaced by algorithms and playlists and that's that's horrible for people like us who, who thought we might have a uh, a living to the very end, so to speak, although everybody else has sort of now joined in those problems. But it was just interesting for me that I, I, I kind of found that the one thing leading to another uh, uh, took me on instant journeys. So they were unknown journeys. If the algorithms were telling me what map to follow in the music I was more associated with, I would get really annoyed that I was being patronized and, and how dare you think that I don't know that, you know. Whereas with classical music and, and, and with, with that world, the, the, the journeys it was sending me off on, the signs it was suggesting I follow were all brand new for me. So every moment was a revelation as one thing linked with another. And also because it was more in an outlying state stage, the algorithms were a little faulty. So whereas within rock and pop, you tend to be sort of channeled into things that are very niche-like, they all are, are the same world. In classical music, you were spiraling off instantly in all sorts of modern directions. So it suddenly seemed a very modern experience as did hearing the music through mobile phones into your headphones with no uh, particular context. It, it seemed to suit classical music more than rock and pop, which of course relied very much on the context, the, the artwork, the photographs, the, the music papers, the charts, all those things that are disintegrated 
suddenly classical music had a, had a different kind of life and, and fitted in more to the kind of listening, you know, the listening to music that I like anyway, which is, is trying to find these unknown pleasures, literally, that, mm. that you then, as a writer, can write about and try and explain them to yourself before anybody else. I mean, did you look at much, what well, was there much writing about that music, contemporary writing? Obviously not rock critics, but there must have been somebody writing something about it. I mean, did you look any of that up at all? Well, you, 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 you know, there's Gramophone magazine, there's all sorts of... Um, oh, no, I meant, I, meant, I meant from even two, three hundred years ago, was there any contemporary... Oh. Yeah, yeah, Definitely. yeah. I mean, there's some great writers along the way, and, and often you can you can turn corners and, and find that somebody like Anthony Burgess writes spectacularly about this kind of music, and and that gives you a little clue as well about writing about it as energy, as psychic energy, not locked into the establishments and the institutions and the histories that we've been handed. It, it, it's it's once you find those writings, Leonard Bernstein, all sorts of writing that actually I could identify with more than some of the more formal paper daily paper critics that this kind of writing was emotional was personal and they put themselves at the center of the story which obviously with my background in rock writing is a, a central you know a central part putting yourself in the story of course there wasn't much place in 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 the world now in terms of the way classical music is is presented to people to put yourself in the story you were an intrusion you were ruining its purity and they're very in the in, in that world one of the things that sort of cut it off from the rest of the world for a while, was they were very protective of its purity and its so-called authenticity. They were very worried that anything that, that intruded upon it might, might, might break it apart. And, and, and because it's always threatened with extinction anyway, for all sorts of reasons, I think they felt the best protection to it was to keep it pure and, and not have these intrusions. So my, my breaking into the world, if you like, which I did as a writer and then as, as a, a sort of, um, you know, going out into the world, taking parts in various panels, in various sort of um, radio shows and television moments about classical music, was looked upon with some alarm because I was coming from the outside and bringing with it all sorts of, of energy and signals and, and thoughts that, that had never really been in that world and they were a little bit uncomfortable with, you know. So for me, it was, um, it, it was, it was very much a, 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 an experiment again, which was important for me having written about music for 40 years and still trying to find out how we experience music, why we experience music and what role writing about it can have. It's interesting that you mentioned the, the, uh, the, way they, the way they try to keep it pure and try to keep it locked in, in the sense of the classical canon. And mm. in the book and in some of the interviews go around the book, you'll talk about the suffocation of the rock canon, which I've always found incredibly suffocating. Yes. And of course, sometimes you will write about bands, I mean, obviously, Joy Vision, who are a key part of that canon. But the idea of a canon is, is incredibly suffocating. Do you think there's, there's, a, there's a warning that actually comes from classical music and the way it was perceived up to 10 years ago that could, could be, should be heeded by pop culture? Well, there's definitely a part of the book that, that, that pays attention to that in terms of a future for what we have assumed in our generation and the generations just before and obviously after us was eternal. You know, the idea that vinyl was eternal, uh, the album was eternal. Of course, they weren't. They were just the latest bouts of technology that happened to have wonderful things associated with them and we all benefited from that it was a remarkable period of time to be alive in but of course it was not going to last forever and we've learned this year especially that nothing's going to last forever and I was very intrigued as I as I experienced more and more the idea of classical music and the musicians over time not necessarily the institutions and the protection that got packed around it is the way that they would constantly fight off threats of extinction they were adaptable they kept moving five centuries. They've been through what we're having this year and what pop and rock is happening as it comes to a kind of end. They've had this many times before. And how does, you know, what we remember of, of pop and rock, rather than just living through it of its time, which it's essentially about, and, and obviously this is the thinking of a writer, you're thinking about this as a writer, it might not be something that a, you know, a fan or a, a, an enthusiast or uh, you know, an expert, even an expert would actually consider if you weren't thinking about it in this other way, what happens in the future to it? Uh, and watching what had happened to your Bachs, your Beethovens, your Mozarts, also the way they'd had the ideological sting taken out of them, if you like, and they, they were forgotten as revolutionaries and they were promoted more as, um, as, as central ingredients of, of, a, of a society that was trying to pretend it was more sophisticated and civilised, using these things as emblems. So I was very aware 
of the changes that were going on in terms of rock and pop definitely coming to a kind of end because of the, the, the end. I know, I know there still is and people are passionate about vinyl, but the truth is obviously in 20, 30 years time, we will be in a very different place. And I was beginning to work out in my own mind what will pass forward and how will it be remembered? And I suppose I was considering that again as a writer, as I get to a certain stage in my life in terms of thinking that maybe I, I have a role even if it's abstract, more abstract than it's ever been, in terms of maybe shaping that, you know, that grand ambition that the rock writer always had to make history and, and write the history of, of their favourite music in a way that was mytholo myth mythologizing and making bigger and, and in, a, in a way creating the history. I, I, I thought I could, I could move that over to this, this world, create a different form of history of being aware that, that it's probably more likely to survive in some senses than pop and rock will. I know that sounds crazy now, but, but it's going to be a very strange future. And some of the, the, the myths and, 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 and histories of rock and pop that have reached a certain stage, they need, they need a whole lot of regeneration. They need a whole lot of reconfiguring of new categories, of new ways of thinking about it, so that they don't just wither, as you say, into its own sort of frozen canon, if you like, and then that starts to be protected. And it's, it loses its essential um, essence, which is change. I mean, you know, pop and rock completely overtook in the, in the, in the cultural world classical music because it, it immediately went through these unbelievable changes because of the recording studio, because of the hybridization that suddenly started to happen in the 20th century. It was going on in classical music, but, but, it, but, but, but by then what was being celebrated in classical music wasn't the new music, the avant-garde music, it was the, the established icons. So I was, I, was, I was, it was definitely part of the book, you know, just reading into it, a sense of this is what happened to this history. It'll be interesting what happens to what, to some extent, is our history. So to, to reinvigorate the culture, you have to keep reinvigorating the myth of a culture. And is that the role of the critic and the writer? Well, I think, I think it was interesting at a time when the gatekeeper, uh, uh, the traditional gatekeeper had been sort of replaced. And we always thought that gatekeeper was a bad thing because it often led to bad things in a way that, you know, a few people's tastes set up the system. But of course, what you realize increasingly lately is that that kind of expert that it could explain wasn't necessarily just saying what their taste was and why they liked something and how many stars it had. And that's all very lovely. But what they were also doing was creating sort of histories around it. They were creating myths around it. They were bringing it forward. They were, they were enhancing and exaggerating the splendor and brilliance, beauty, and often ugliness of the music by the way they wrote, and it was a key part of it. So if, if a, a critic is replaced, which at one point seemed like a, a great idea, by everybody being a critic, it, it, it ceases to have a, a kind of agile response to culture that in fact creates the culture. It just becomes almost a, a, a kind of a, a mass, really. You know, I felt this very much with, with streaming, and, and as much as I love it for access to all music, it is interesting that it breaks everything down into just being in one place. And it, and it, and it almost creates an equivalent idea with classical music, that all of the, the differences that there were within this one thing called classical music was starting to happen a little bit with Spotify. Everything was just becoming Spotify. And in fact, when people started to ask me what I was listening to, thinking I was gonna say some band or something, I would just say, you know, my, my favorite group at the moment is Spotify. And in a way, Spotify was like the artist, everything was in there. But, but that obviously runs into all sorts of, of, of problems because it's, it's just settling down and it's almost becoming just a utility and the beauty and the strangeness and the important sort of descriptions and apprehensions of troubling times like we're in at the moment. It can go missing a little bit when it's just, you just make your own playlist, you have a nice time, it's all very lovely and it is lovely and it's fantastic and everyone obviously has their own private moments. But there seems to be something outside of that that needed to happen as well. And speaking of mythologies, when you go back 200 years to listen to music, and you said before, out of the context of other people that wrote it and the, and the way it was written and what it's reacting to, and it's a, that's another sort of sort of historical level playing field, I guess. But as you sort of learn about those people, does that change the way you listen to the music? And do you start creating your own mythologies around them? Well, it, it, it happened very much with Mozart, because I think one of the things that it obviously put me off the idea of listening to Mozart oh, when I was in my you know, teens, 20s, 30s, etc., was how it sounded. You know, rock and pop, we were so lucky that the, 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 the sound of it was so extraordinary, constantly extraordinary because of the recording studio and the producers. And the producers in the end are the, the, the real heroes of this 50, 60 year period, you know, how they made these extraordinary sounds. And, and so when you would go from listening to 
an amazingly produced pop record to a Mozart record. And you heard those instruments and those instruments were embedded with all sorts of suggestions of something else and they seemed quaint and they seemed fluffy. I think the big breakthrough for me was when I suddenly heard it more as psychic energy. I, I, I heard a, an undercurrent of death and disease, even if, if the, the music on the, on the surface was very jolly and jaunty, because obviously the times were when you would die early from plague, from disease, which is another interesting parallel to now. But the, there was still this music that was about enjoyment and pleasure. But even when it sounded incredibly pleasurable, there was, there was a darkness to it. And, and I, I suddenly could, could understand the time he was writing it in, how old he was when he wrote it, how much he was writing, what was about to happen to him. Uh, and this was a, a, a huge breakthrough for me, not hearing um, uh, fussy, frilly sounds, but hearing a, 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 an amazing mind at work, at play. Uh, and, and then that transferred all the way through in a way. I, I, I really started to um, feel it with Beethoven and you get, you get the idea of these moments of, that we don't often get, although we're having it with the Bob Dylans of the world, but that the music was growing up with these people. And that, that when they were approaching death, that, 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 that it was in the music. And as someone who may or may not be approaching death, there is, there is a, a sudden bonus to that, that you, you're having the, the, the world that you're suddenly inhabiting represented through music. And then I started to find the instruments that I like. I mean, it, eventually it came down to my favorite sort of combination, because also you, I always used to think the classical was always the, the orchestras, it was always the symphonies, it was always the bombast. And then when you break into it, you know, you realize it's about little ensembles, eccentric ensembles, combinations of music. It's not, you know, it's, it's cellos on its own. It's these incredible sonatas. And, and so in the end, almost rooted in my love of the power trio or the jazz quartet, you know, I started to really get obsessed with the string quartet. And, and, and almost a book within the book is, is a history of the string quartet. And within that, you get a history of classical music, how it keeps moving forward. Uh, so from the very beginning in the sort of 18th century, it's sort of invented. And then for 200 years, 250 years, all the way up to now, it's constantly reinvented, it's changing shape. The composer goes into this world to try and work out how they can extend and enhance something that seems to have been done again and again and again and find new ways to do it, which I think is also an interesting sort of clue to maybe how pop and rock moves forward. You know, the idea that some of the things seem to have been done again, again and again. We know the poses, we know the riffs, we know the costumes, but we, we've got these unlikely precedents for how it can all be done in a, in, a, in a constantly different way, often in a revolutionary way, a completely radical way, and yet it's still it's contained within the idea of it being a string quartet. Well, so, so once you get that knowledge, do you apply it back into pop culture itself? Do you listen to pop culture in a different way now? Well, one of the things that was very interesting, and I think is another sign of how the world tends to work, is that, and I, I've had this once before, once or twice before, where people think you've abandoned <laughs> the music you used to listen to and the whole point of the book and I've made I've gone out of my way occasionally to make that clear is it's not either or it's all together uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know I was I, I, I'm very interested again in a, in a as a writer as a, a critic as a theorist as a historian if you like about new kinds of categories I'm, I'm finding that the categories we use now for music especially are so old-fashioned they're out of the 20th century they kind of don't work anymore the pop the rocks the jazz even the hip-hops Nothing, those categories don't work. And I hated the Spotify categories, chill out, mm. relax, and clock time, and this type of coffee time. And, and I thought it seemed important really in the way that a word like jazz appears, even a word like hip hop, a way, uh, the way that glitch appears. I, I was really disappointed that no new categories were appearing and materializing. No new ways of responding to the music in a, in a sort of formal way in terms of developing new categories for the popular music of the time, which sometimes doesn't seem to be just about music, but about other things. And I don't mean that derogatory, I mean, it's become something else and it needs to be almost approached in, in another way. And I, I was very interested in, in the idea of, of, of developing new categories uh, within classical music as well, you know, moving, move, moving it forward to show you how much there is within classical music that is, it isn't all one thing. There's Harrison Burt whistle, you know, there's Morton Feldman, it's, it's, it's all filed under classical and it often means that people who would probably like it if the far edges of the avant-garde and of electronic music would actually, like I did at once upon a time, start to seep into what becomes suddenly, you suddenly find you're listening to a classical record. You, you didn't know, but you suddenly find you, you are. But, I, but I, at a time when 
the niches and the alcoves seem to be oddly more ingrained in culture. I thought it really needs to, to sort of break apart some of those and, and start to mix things up so that the music starts to, to work together as music rather than the, the genres. We love the genres and the genres have always been great. Rock writers especially love inventing a new genre. So it's, it's like you, you need some kind of metal if you manage to invent a new genre. <laughs> But, but it's led to a sort of cul-de-sac in a way of too many, not, not necessarily very descriptive and increasingly very banal. So I, I think that was also an element in the book of, of trying to work out what the new categories are, especially as happened this year in this new world. There is a crisscross course between classical and rock. You know, there are, I mean, obviously in the prog days, there was some unsuccess, fairly unsuccessful experiments with it. But now there's bands like Godspeed, Black Emperor, which are kind of rock, but kind of classical. I mean, do you find much interest in that area, or do you find it's a bit either or? You know, I've always been interested in that area. Not the, the, the original prog was interesting because, obviously, it, it, it made no sense, and you realise over time a lot of it wasn't very well done. And that some of, I mean, some of the original prog rock was, a, was a, a, an incorporation of, of classical bombast to try and give it a feeling of complexity and and sophistication and it wasn't really working and it came associated with all sorts of nonsense that you would connect with Lord of the Rings which at the time certainly seemed almost fascist in its knowledge and its, its desire for a pre-industrial era so there was all sorts of weird areas that you wouldn't have gone into that area but I was always fascinated by any musician I liked in the 1970s that made a move out they obviously the, the key one was Brian Eno who had been in Roxy Music and was, a, a, to all intents and purposes, a glam star, and then suddenly made no pussy footing, which to me is almost a key central part of the book in a funny sort of way. It's like a religious object that I fan out from, <laughs> because it was like a drone record, that, almost like a solid sculpture in space, and you could play it at 16 RPM, which was also incredibly thrilling, because then it became even more of an object, that almost <laughs> filled the room, turn the lights out, play this astonishing drone and then over time you realize that in fact he was taking it from Steve Rice from Lamont Young you, you found out that in fact that was a backlash against serialism uh, a, a, an early 20th century uh, way of trying to create music using numbers which in a funny sort of way then ends up in the way that music was made using computers so you kind of find yourself drifting into areas through the, the musicians you like like John Cale would also suggest doors to be opened in the way that he distorted certain elements of the Velvet Underground, which essentially was coming from what was known as classical music. It wasn't, you know, obviously your Beethoven's, your Sostakovich's, but, but it was coming from that world. So I'd always been there and thereabouts. And, and uh, obviously, um, as a historian, I guess, I, be, I think Paul Gambaccini was the first to call me a historian. And I, at first I was absolutely furious. And then after a while I thought, I like that, you know. <laughs> I, I started to get very interested in you, you, that, that French area at the end of the 19th, early 20th century, which I always felt was the beginning of recorded music, even though they yet hadn't had the recording studio, because the Debussy's, Satie's and Ravel's started to put their music together as a kind of backlash to Wagner and the bombast they started to put their music together, almost like they were multi-tracking without a multi-track. And they were overlaying and they were doing sorts of things that hadn't really happened in classical music before, as if they were anticipating the recording studio. So I, I kind of started to make, and, and even made a record about it with Art of Noise, which was about the idea that the, the beginnings of how to use the recording studio began before there were even recording studios, which I thought was fascinating. And, you know, you, you, you scan forward from certainly Debussy, Ravel, Satie, you scan forward to Miles Davis, you scan forward to Brian Eno, you scan forward to all the places they then went. So again, it might not have been anything that partic particularly impressed academics or anything like that, but I thought it was an interesting, in my world, in my history, beginning to the kind of classical music I liked, the, 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 where it was involved, ideas were involved. There was a sort of sense of surrealism, of dada, of playing with image and masking yourself, creating, creating the kind of things that became very... Um, uh, uh, you know, relevant and prevalent in, 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 the, in the days of rock and pop. So in a sense, when you're watching an orchestra, say it's a 48-piece orchestra, it's like watching a 48-track studio on a stage, pre-technology. Yes. It, it was also interesting, the idea of the orchestra, because I got very excited about the idea of the orchestra suddenly, because I started to see musicians. You know, I, I started working out the Royal Academy of Music and, and seeing musicians, seeing individual musicians, made you realize that the way they turned the orchestra over time into a kind of faceless collective, 
that all dressed the same, really denied the undeniable, undeniable, almost psychedelic acoustic power of each and every instrument that was in this kind of weird sort of the same zone, but also different zones. And the incredible power that was coming from it that somehow you missed because it never seemed to come across as powerfully as that on a record. And in the, in the formal concerts, there were so many formalities you had to go through. The, the conductor, the bowing, the, the not sure when you applaud, all these very basic things that the, the classical world get very annoyed about when outsiders come in and say, I, I, I don't know how to act. I, I feel I've got to act in a certain way. I feel I need to know certain terms. But the actual raw sound of it and the way that it had been used over time in a, a number of ways, leading to Paderecki in the 60s and Ligeti, that we obviously heard through films. You know, Penderecki's all over The Exorcist, he's all over The Shining, Leggetti's all over 2001. People could somehow take it and accept it when it was associated with cinema and indeed a, a crucial part of the cinema. But it was interesting when it was lopped off from that, then it went back into being the avant-garde. So I think the orchestra suddenly became very exciting to me as well. And I, I ended up as part of the book, bizarrely, I ended up doing a speech to the Association of British Orchestras as part of my entering this world, because that world wants to know how they can update themselves. And, and anybody vaguely from the rock world, they think must have some clue about how to be hit. <laughs> but I was going yes. in to celebrate the magical, uncanny, uh, unspoilt power of the orchestra. I, wasn't, I didn't care about how it was sold or, or what its future was, or do you want to put it with hip hop beats? Do you want to get it into the community? I just wanted it to, to carry forward as a kind of weird time machine. I wanted it to carry forward as a sign of intellectual life. So it was a very funny speech because at the, at the end, I think I got, I think I got two claps and then the <laughs> silence descended. And I, I don't think, uh, and it was a, a very interesting moment for me because I think I'd gone into classical music world trying to be all sort of preachy and go into panels and discussions as, as is the modern fashion. And, and in the end, I realized that it was probably better that I just did a lot of this on my own uh, in the writer's <laughs> head, you know, and, and as I say in the book, create a music scene for myself because suddenly you realize that Everybody's got so many different opinions, different histories, different senses of what things should be. When you go in and you suggest your own, and I think, you know, we know this very much in our world, John, the amount of hostility and opposition you can get, because there's an assumption sometimes you're ordering people to behave like you. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying desperately to explain, no, 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 this is a music scene in my head. If by whatever quirk of fate, it becomes a bigger music scene, fine, but I wasn't I wasn't instructing you to follow. <laughs> yeah, I, was, yeah. I, was, I was creating my own world in a way. And, that, and then that becomes the book, you know. Yeah, leaving a trail of ideas. Yes, it's very much sense, about yeah. that, yes. Because in the end, whatever you write about, you're essentially responding to something that, uh, that triggers in you some ideas. In this case, about music, about what it is, about why we love it so much, about how magical it is, what is it really doing, the breath that it, you know, that, that, that somehow that it creates, that, that lands on your body, the physical properties. You're basically writing about music. You're not saying that one thing's better than another. You're not saying, well, you are obviously sometimes, but you're not saying, you know, I, I demand, I command that you listen to this. You're just exploring it. You're probing in a way the early great rock writers did in the 60s and 70s when it was a new kind of thing. They were exploding into action and there were no rules and regulations, which I think is what made it so attractive to us as, as, as potential writers that we could write with freedom. And, and obviously the freedom over time got kind of restricted because more joined in and it became almost um, well, something that did become, you, you could be trained in the arts of rock journalism, which in a way undermines its original propulsive force where you made up your own influence from different sources to become the kind of writer you wanted to be. And it was the writing that was important not you ordering people to follow your particular canon. You were throwing things out there, suggesting things, seeing things, finding things, hoping that maybe you would leave trails, but you weren't, you know, you weren't being dogmatic about it, quite the opposite. It was, it was opinion, not fact. It was felt. Yeah, yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. And I think what was interesting with rock journalism certainly is that to some extent what started to happen is that original autodidactic route that had happened where, where the writing was coming from, from the margins, from the underground got replaced by a more, a more pseudo-academic way of writing about it, if you like, you know, a bit more polite. And, that, that, you know, I'm, I, it's not my cup of tea, but I'm not going to deny it shouldn't exist and probably needed to exist. But I, I found once it washed up in like the pitchfork, that it, it's it, some of that wildness that there used to be, the, the making things up, the interpreting it out of your own personal experience. I think, I think rock and pop suffered a little bit. I mean, I would obviously say that, you know, but I think it suffered a little bit from not having 
the associated myth makers, rather, you know, sort of almost telling them where they were uh, in terms of their music. You know, I think the Dylans and your Beatles and your Stones and your Bowies are, are in a world of, of the music writer at the beginning and were paying very much attention to them because they could see where they were. It's like a mirror and they could see how to change. So you got a lot more changes coming because they thought, well, I'm now fixed as that, so I now need to be that because I don't want to be fixed. And they were seeing it through through music paper coverage, you know. So I think it was an important part of the, the maelstrom that happened, that even though we now seem to live in a digital maelstrom, in terms of a cultural maelstrom, things oddly go slower, you know, in mm. terms of the changes in, in musical styles and genres. Well, or, or it just keeps repeating itself because it's sort of stuck in yeah, the loop where yeah. everybody knows too much. <laughs> a handbook now, you can look, you can, mm. and it's great, you know, you can pick it. I mean, in a way, the original music coming out of the original hybridization of blues is a constant, I'll have this, I'll have that, I'll have this, I'll have that. But it was coming in a much more frantic new world and, and your choices were so revelatory. So that if you put, you know, the blues with Arthur Rambo, you know, you're coming up with something unbelievable. Whereas now the handbook often just consists of influences from within the music. And those outside influences, you know, are, are not so available or, or looked at. So it's just it just becomes smaller and smaller uh, a thing rather than constantly exploding with surprises. Speaking of the blues, and this is, this is common generalisation here, and we talked about John Cale before. But what I always found fascinating about what he was doing with Velvet Underground was maybe bringing a, a colliding a very European tradition with a very American tradition of Lou Reed's very American sort of songwriting. And this kind of leads me to what we talked about this afternoon, actually, before I want to phone you up, about this, the idea of going back into a very European culture. I know there's American classical music, I know there's a worldwide thing, but it's a very European form originally. Was that interesting as well, to go back into, into your roots as well, as a European? Well, the Northern thing, and also definitely the way scenes would acquire momentum and then would be acquire authority, uh, which then obviously becomes doubtful and suspicious. You know, the whole Viennese, you know, the Germanic tradition that, that started, you know, at the beginning, almost out of naive, youthful decisions that are taken. <clears throat> After 100, 150 years, it becomes very, well, it does become Wagnerian. It becomes a different thing, you know, the superiority of a nation, instead of it originally being, oh, I'd like to mix French style with Italian style and I'll create a German style. And it's done as a, as a spontaneous, creative moment somehow gets filtered through society and through all the institutions and establishments and becomes a dangerous thing, you know. So I, I, I'm, I'm always interested in the, the possibility for uh, unexpected hybrids. And I, and I think the, the John Cale, you know, bringing it, I mean, what John Cale brings into the Velvet Underground is, is, is essentially experimental music at that time. It was in the margins of classical music, but, but it was essentially a classical world. And it was using techniques and uh, uh, opportunities to change sound and, and, and create a different kind of sound that in combination with a more traditional approach, you know, the, the bill building approach of Lou Reed to an extent, which and also approach that originally had its start in, in the hybridization of the blues. There's a fascinating, very unexpected moment where one tradition is meeting another. Mm -hmm. And it makes a lot of sense because as, as a musician, the repetition the, 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 the liberation, the, the resistance of, 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 of dark forces of the blues. You know, there's, there's all sorts of elements of classical music, certainly after the war, that's doing a similar thing. So the fact that it makes, that there's a moment when it can meet, it, it creates something as, as extraordinary as the Velvet Underground. It creates something that, oddly enough, as extraordinary as Kraftwerk as well, who I've always thought of, of as a classical quartet, experimenting in the idea of making pop music uh, as, as a sort of found mm -hmm. object, you know. And, and those sort of moments, it, it happened a lot in the 60s, which is what Brian Eno came out of with, with a musician like Cornelius Cardio and all these experimental laboratories and, and all sorts of little cells that were forming, uh, investigating the properties of sound, of improvised music that then feeds into pop music. It's those wonderful moments when the unexpected make contact that I think is both special about classical music and special about rock and pop. And I suppose what I've tried to do in the book is just throw the two sort of stories together a little bit and, and see occasionally where they meet, where they meet. I mean, there's one of my favourite paragraphs in the book, if I can blow my own, we'll get it out of the, out of the bag. Blow your own cello. <laughs> you know, I'll blow my own cello. Is when, you know, I, I, I sort of do this very quick thing where serialism became minimalism, which became pop music. And the pop music, in a way, is a branch of minimalism. And, and minimalism was a branch of serialism. So the most unlistenable music of the 20th century, if you like, the, the atonal music, 
um, eventually led to the most listened to music of the 20th century, which was pop music. But you can see areas where they, they, they meet. And you can see areas where they meet in the 1950s when the first people to get to programmable music on computers are the avant-garde classical musician, the Pierre Boulez is the Milton Babbitts, uh, Babbitts and the, and the Carline Stockhausens, and they're making the kind of experiments with sound um, in, a, in a lacking pulse, lacking rhythm, almost just trying to find a way to stretch sound and make sound something more, but it eventually becomes something that, that channels into pop and rock in programmed music, which is essentially what pop music now is. And so, you know, as I say in the book, you know, the, the idea of Milton Babbitt's RCA computer in 1957 plus Elvis Presley, well, the love child of that is Spotify. You know, and it's just, it, I mean, you know, some people will be absolutely appalled and you're not saying, no, I'm not saying this is the history, but I'm saying in there are so many complicated moments, so many mm. uh, sort of invisible connections that it's not as blocked off as it's, I mean, it was blocked off in classical music, you know, serialism leading to minimalism, leading to post-minimalism, but it was more complicated than that. All sorts of things were firing in and out and there was all sorts of resistances. And it's the same with pop and rock. The history sometimes gets blocked off, turned into very convenient shapes. When in fact, it's more of a maelstrom, I think. It's more, more of a constant kind of energy that, 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 that's, that's kind of um, infecting other parts of itself. Uh, and and this, this is sort of some of the things I, I, I guess I learned writing it just as a writer about, about process and about history, not necessarily about classical music. And in a sense, bringing those ideas into classical music as well, because you don't treat it like a museum piece. You talk about the music from two, three hundred years ago can sound can sound equally contemporary now, but also yeah. class, classical music didn't stop. It continued, didn't it? So you talk about stockhousing, et cetera. And also, uh, you sent me a link to a fantastic Icelandic composer whose name I've forgotten now. Anna Absolutely brilliant music. And it, and it sounds super contemporary, super now, but also in the traditional classical. So it, it yes. didn't stop, did it? Yeah. It didn't stop. And what's interesting about that, that Icelandic thing, which I've always been fascinated by the Icelandic musicians, is their position on the planet, as much as, again, this is a writer's thought, they, they always thought I was mad thinking it, but I, but I found it interesting that they were outside, obviously, the Anglo-American tradition, they're outside the usual things we were worried about, like an orchestra, and Thorvaldsdottir uses the orchestra as a new thing, because in a way, to a kind of younger country like Iceland, who hasn't, hasn't got the freight of this, bur the burden of this classical history, it was just, oh my God, I could make a piece of music for these musicians in this room, and it has, it has a sudden freshness to it that, that in a way, you know, reminds you of, of the opportunity still, and, and, and she's brought up on, you know, modern pop and rock as well and electronic music. So it's suddenly you're beginning to get the idea of a hybrid that, that, that comes out of somewhere you weren't expecting it to arrive, you know, that includes this unwieldy, almost, you know, Victorian thing, the orchestra, but it could still become a modern thing. And, and I think it's absolutely right that I found that I was listening to classical music as if it was new because it was on my phone coming through my wireless and my wireless speakers and my headphones and therefore it was new to me and my big mantra became as you know we were listening to music from 40 50 years ago and that happened to be the velvet underground and Iggy pop and you know why don't i listen to music 100 years ago 200 years because everything now st started the chronology had broken down to an extent and mm. i found that interest that formlessness i actually found interesting as long as i only for me, not to lecture anybody else as much as they might think <laughs> I'm doing that, if I could find connections that excited me, that led me into sort of making patterns, if you like, making patterns out of all this that made sense of why it was and why it was happening, rather than it just happening for the sake of it. Which I, I guess as a rock critic, or as a critic of any sort, has always infuriated me, the idea that it's just done for the sake of it, because you can. I'd rather, that's craft. I'd rather there be something else that, um, in between the spaces, some kind of magic. You know, I guess it's, it's always looking for magic and then trying to explain the magic, but obviously without giving any of the mystery away, which is, you know, an important part that infuriates people about what I do, but it's important. It's important to me that I do that, you know. And it, it, I guess, interestingly, someone like Mozart would have been a big fan of Spotify, not the royalty rates, but the idea, because <laughs> he, he seemed like a person who was always going forward, but in his time, wasn't he? Well, what, what, what I found increasingly interesting about Mozart was he was going forward in, in about six different ways at the same time. So as he was writing a string quartet, he's writing a, a solo piece, he's writing a symphony, he's writing an opera. Because there was this wonderful catalogue that I found that reminded me a little bit of Eno's and Oblique Strategies almost, the, the K numbers. 
which uh, that somebody, some mad um, enthusiast in the 19th century put together a Mozart catalogue, K1 to K600 you know, and whatever, that basically in more or less chronological order gave you Mozart. And you could dive into this and find out in, in, in over 5K numbers, more or less at the same time, that he was doing the most, as well as the most extraordinary things that are happening in his life, in society, in his, his love life, his family, the deaths of parents or children. He was writing all at the same time these extraordinary pieces of music because it's, it's almost like there is something about it that becomes uh, uh, truly fantastic and magical, that, that in the middle of all this, somehow this sound, this, this odd new combination of thinking about how he felt and what he felt and what it was for became this and 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 gets given to us through the the, the this, this this thing the score as well which i also started to fall in love with as a kind of quasi literary object almost that it transmitted information across time which to me seems increasingly modern it seems more modern than anything we have at the moment the score you know <laughs> yeah. because all, all of this kind of thing zoom also sometimes seems like it's out of the 1950s at any minute it might snap like an elastic band the score keeps information traveling forward like like words do so I, I i found a way to sort of almost you know make my own hybrid in a way of, of an enthusiasm for the score and enthusiasm for the written word and making that the book as if as if somewhere there's a score for the book you know so uh, there's quite a few audience questions coming in now but before we go to that i just want to talk about the spark for the book and the spark for getting interested in classical music was that you did the tv program where you had to get involved not as a music critic but as somebody actually making the music and that was and that, was that quite a profound moment for you it, it was a transformational moment in the sense that obviously there was one or two things that had happened previously that made it clear i was interested in that world like the art of noise seduction mm -hmm. of claude debussy album which is you know, I think one of the greatest records ever made to only sell six copies. <laughs> it's a wonderfully beautiful record, but but um, interested nobody. You know, it's even got Rakim on there rapping about Charles Baudelaire. Uh, obviously, I realise now I really am in an audience of one because I thought that was <laughs> a storm. But um, so, you know, it was out that I was interested. And then there came the opportunity to do this um, television, pro reality television, you know, so to speak, at the Royal Academy of Music. But what it, what it gave me was an opportunity to study music. And it is, it is fascinating that a lot of us writers about music and a lot of musicians actually technically don't understand how music works and what it is. They, they can't write music. They, they, they can't read music. And I thought that was interesting that I could say so much about music, but I didn't know how it was put together. And I was at an age, which I thought was one of my later ages, and I now realise was one of my younger ages, <laughs> where I thought I, maybe I need to find out this just to see what would happen to me as a rock writer, as a critic. You know, um, would I be spoiled as a critic if I learned about the nuts and bolts of music? Or would I suddenly be able to write in a, in a, in a, a different way um, about music because I understood it? So I was very fascinated about trying to learn how to write a piece of music. Not a, not a tacky, hybrid, you know, mutant pop piece that puts disco beats under a string or anything like that. I, I was genuinely interested if I could write a piece of music that came from a score. And then once I started to learn how to write a score, heard the music being made, it becomes very addictive. I can see why people, classical music in a way sustains itself because the, the, the unbelievable feeling of something in your head or, or written on a piece of paper, it happened to me the first time when I tried to explain somehow how Debussy had led to Bill Evans and Miles Davis and put that in a piece of music and Gil Evans and that whole idea of, of, of creating a piece of music that, that was almost an imagining Miles Davis writing a classical piece, a, a formal classical piece, because obviously there's world, world where jazz is black classical music, but I, I wrote this piece and I, I worked really hard at the notes on a page and then it was, it was very raw and very provisional, but when the orchestra plays, there's something about an orchestra altogether that gives it this, this in, in, enormous emotional power. It, uh, the, the, the TV show, did get its teary moment. I was, I was determined not to cry, but it was, a, it was an unbelievably powerful feeling and I wanted to have it again and again. Unfortunately, I didn't get it many more times because you know the, the TV programme takes so long to make and then it's all over. And the great thing about a TV programme, if I wanted to write a piece that included a harp, I was, I'm at the Royal Academy of Music and I asked for a harp and five minutes later, a harp comes through the door. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it, was a, it was a completely spoiled you know, piece of nonsense, but it gave me, an unbelievable appetite for learning 
about the music and, and then what became the ambition which i guess forms the book in a way because the book moves from me having to write about harry styles to me interviewing harry Birtwistle. and what happened was then i thought you know i'd really love to interview classical musicians because in a way when i began writing i very much considered that was my specialist world that i love to interview people and 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 I'd been asked less and less in the 21st century to do that. So I was missing it myself. And I thought maybe, you know, there's a world where I could go and interview classical musicians. God knows what I was thinking. But then I thought, oh, I'm scared. I'm actually scared. I don't know how to talk to them. I don't know what to talk about. I don't know the language. And so I, I, I kind of went through a process of trying to learn enough that eventually I could interview Sir Harrison Birtwistle, who to me was the most formidable of, of, the, of the alive composers, one of the great living and dead composers. And, sort of as formidable as Joyce or Jean-Luc Godard. And that to me then became the, the world that, you know, can I learn enough to sit down with Harrison Birtwistle, who, you know, famously is incredibly suspicious of anyone coming out of the pot world and have a conversation. And I did have a conversation. Now it might've been, you know, a, a peculiar conversation to those that really know that world, but I, I had a conversation with him and we talked about music and we talked about an area of Manchester music that I'd always felt very guilty about, that in my history of Manchester, I'd not really mentioned, which was the Manchester School that Harrison Birtwistle was part of in the 50s, the Modernist School, the Peter Maxwell Davis, Alexander Gurr, um, John Nash, you know, John Ogden. It just seemed an incredible sort of um, way to connect with someone who had become what he'd become because he was a northerner and he was, he was outside the system and outside the establishment and wanted to make sense of existence through what he found he could do from a young age. And my own journey, it was a preposterous sort of, um, sort of combining of, of energies. But I was, it, it, for me, it was the great culmination of the book. And in, in a sense, the last line of the book, which I could do on the audio book, but if you read it, imagine it in your head. The last line of the book is read by both me and meant to be by both me and Harrison at the same time. In, in harmony. In harmony. Well, kind of yeah. harmony. <laughs> <laughs> Which is actually the explanation why an orchestra sounds so fantastic. I always think like choirs, in a time where everyone's shouting and no one's listening, when you get that many people in harmony, it's quite remarkable. Yes. <laughs> yes. I, I, it's interesting about that thing about everybody shouting as well. I, I found in, in areas of this, which has been particularly pertinent this year, great moments of stillness as well. Mm. And, 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 and I started to love the fact that it was so unbelievably unfashionable. That, that this world is nothing that's being talked about day to day, which drives you mad. Everybody combining in the same thing, the same subject, trying to break. And suddenly I could find something that was outside that, you know, and, and I realised this year, oh, I, I had found it. You know, it, 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 this is a world where I don't have to uh, believe that what I'm told are the only things worth talking about at the moment are the only things worth talking about. There are, there are still other things, and those other things, in the end, are actually more important to help us deal with what we're going through than what they appear to be, which is just repeating the same old pressures, anxiety, so-called solutions. Okay, Paul, that's, that's great. We we haven't got a super amount of time. There's some good questions here. Uh, I just want I just want to reiterate how great the book is. It's I mean, as ever, it's it's it really sets off on loads of trains of thought. It's wonderfully entertaining as well, and you, really informative actually. You hey? just talked about the title, aren't you? Uh, talk about the book. You, no, I thought you were just talking about the title there, you know. Oh, the title, title alone, yeah, I've already read the title. <laughs> I read it over and over in a loop. <laughs> so here's a question from Mark Ewell. So, um, fans of Alex Ross's classical writings were famously horrified that he, he would begin, brackets, late in his career to write about rock, Bob Dylan, Radiohead, Bjork, etc. You, in a way, did the opposite. What backlash did you get from the public and your own fans for your flip into classical writing? Also, well, he's got a little caveat. Also, did you feel you have to uh, adapt your prose in a way that would cater for the classical audience? Well, I, well, I, the whole point in a way was not to adapt my uh, prose for this so-called classical audience. That, in many ways, was the point. Could I write about Mozart the way I wrote about monochrome set in 1981? You know, and I saw no reason why I couldn't. Mm. I didn't understand why anybody would tell me it was wrong. Um, uh, and yeah, there was, it was weird. I remember there was a piece that went up in the Observer where I think I, people were fascinated by the idea that rock critic becomes classical lover and you go into that mode as if you're dumping everything you've ever loved to become that, which again, absolutely wasn't. And there was a kind of weird lo amount of hostility and um, surprise and all those words 
that come with the violence of, of comment boards. And I, 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 I guess I was surprised by that. I couldn't quite work out what, 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 what was necessarily wrong. I, it's like I'd suddenly betrayed the tribe or something, <laughs> but I didn't think it should be or ever was a tribe anyway. And that the whole point, if you liked the music that certainly I liked in the 1970s, whether that was Cannes or Van der Graaff Generator or, or, T, or David Bowie's Low or, or um, you know, Faust, uh, or, or whether it was um, Roxy Music and Sparks. It seemed daft that somehow that didn't lead off into a spiral of you discovering constantly new music. I, I couldn't understand why I needed to be constantly in the same box. And I guess the misunderstanding was that I was somehow turning my back on things I'd said before and therefore betraying that. But of course, I didn't think I was. What I was trying to do was bring all that into this other world so that you'd say, I'd, I'd say, look, you can actually go from a certain ratio to Penderecki, and the two things fit together as much as any other um, move, movement from one music to the other. I remember vaguely in the 70s, John Peel would play a bit of dub, play a bit of rockabilly, play a bit of punk, play a bit of Vaben, and in the classic John Peel way with no real discussion or, or comment on why. And, and you realize that the best sort of love of music, the best way music history develops is as a kind of uh, a piece of water that just crosses borders without any fuss, there's no passport control, there's nobody getting in the way of it, there's nobody saying you can't come through here, there's no brick wall to stop it, the water keeps moving. And maybe that's one of the things I did learn from listening to John Peel, you know, the idea that, that you didn't really want these borders and boundaries to keep being put up. And in one of the chapters in the book, where I, in 1973, I imagine a world of 1973, where the albums that I was loving at the time, Future Days, the, the Kraftwerk, the the, uh, the Roxy Musics and everything. I was also listening to these other extraordinary pieces of music coming from other places that had a life and a home in 1973, either because they were old pieces by Bach that happened to be played in 1973 by an amazing musician, or they were pieces written in 1973, like Morton Feldman's Voices and, and Cello, or Nic Nicholas Moore's Life Studies. That I'm thinking, well, how, how amazing. And I didn't know any of this. And, and what, what is it about the world that constantly keeps wanting to separate things? And it's those divisions that, 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 that it's a metaphor for seem to be the things that cause us most, most problems in life. So I was always very fascinated that there was so much hatred for me suddenly saying, you know what, I quite like classical music. <laughs> and that's a notion which you've fantastically demolished in the book as well, you know, and also the idea that classical music when we grew up in the north of England in, in the 60s or whatever, it was it was kind of looked on as being kind of snobs music, ridiculously, wasn't it? Where it's everything yeah. music, in it? And you, you know, the only judge in the end is your instinct, isn't it? So, but well, yeah. I'll have to rat rattle through these, sorry, Paul. Okay. Um, Sam Harford, uh, great question actually, Mark, but Sam Harford asks, with a newfound accessibility to music, have you found any new artists that are taking a more direct and identifiable influence from classical music? Well, you know, there undoubtedly is because there's beginning to, and for Valsdottia, I mean, mm. um, the, the Nicole Mule is the, the Bedroom Community label, which I love, um, uh, seems to be a, a demonstration in a way of using the recording studio to make a kind of classical music as if it, it, it deserves and should have the sound and the power that comes from a great, a great um, produced um, a modern pop record, soul record, hip hop record, the, the great production, you know, that for me it was always interesting that Brian Eno's big thing was how he was wanting to make what became ambient music, like um, discrete music and music for airports, because he loved Steve Reich and he loved that music, but it was, it was recorded so terribly. Whereas a really tacky pop song could be recorded like it was a holy artifact. And, and, and I've always been interested that classical music always was produced so badly. And obviously, it, 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 again, from the classical point of view, it's a problem because they feel that once a piece of music gets into the studio, it's finished. Pop music, a song only begins in the studio in many ways, uh, and the score only comes at the end. Pop music, uh, classical music is protecting itself almost as if the idea of, of producing it, it, it of multi-tracking it, again, ruins its purity. And I, I suppose the, the, the modern acts that, that have a classical sensibility they're using the multi-track, they're using the, the whole sort of process of recording music, is a little nubble, you know, a little area where I feel there might be a new kind of contact uh, that, that, that creates a, a new form of, 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 of music that isn't that and it isn't that, it's something else. And again, that comes down to it needing a new category. Okay, and there's a question here from Peter Francis. Uh, what do you hope the Gramophone Review 
uh, will make of the book. Uh, will this book get you invited back to the classical Brits? No, I mean, that was funny, actually, because you see how protected they are. I reviewed the classical Brits and um, uh, they were so offended that I had any point of view on it that wasn't adorable. <laughs> that they sort of banned me or something. I said, he's not coming back, um, which I'm quite happy about in a way. Uh, but it's, um, it, yeah, it's, uh, it's, what was that? What was that again? Oh, uh, yeah. What, what, what do you hope the gramophone review will be? Oh, the gramophone review. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, yeah, I, 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 I'm intrigued. You know, I mean, there's been, it, it is interesting because you, you, you are interfere, you're creating a kind of interference that, that maybe they're not particularly um, pleased about, or you're creating a kind of interference that, that they, they might like because it makes them think about it in a different way. Maybe that would be my best hope. You know that they they um, enjoy the idea that you put yourself in the story and you use a certain kind of prose they're not used to to write about the things they like and maybe you know it opens up some of the reasons why they like it much more than the more formal you know um, review that they, you know learned review they would do that that I would come in it in a more explosive way if you like uh, with a mm -hmm. with a different kind of reason why I'm writing about that music. In a sense, putting classical music possibly back to, in the way it's written in the first place you know well, it, would, it, would, it would definitely been written about as part of daily life it would have been written about in a much mm. more gossipy ferocious fast-moving way it hadn't yet settled down into a history that then appears to need uh, a, a more formal way of approaching it I, I guess I could go into it in a, a more as uh, recapturing the innocence I would have had as a 19 year old suddenly writing about music for the enemy Maybe, you know, it, was, it comes down to just that. Can I just recapture that kind of innocence to create the kind of worlds within a, a piece of writing about a piece of music that, I've, that, that, that has always excited me? And uh, there's a the little extra question here which Peter actually asked me. He says, what, what piece of music do I, I discovered from reading your books blew me away? We mentioned it before, Anna, Paul, Valdottier, um, terrible pronunciation which reminded me of another great Icelandic uh, writer who's more of a soundtrack writer, but there's definitely similar elements. Hilda Gornadottir, who wrote yeah. The Joker Theme and the one for, um, oh, writes quite a few things, fantastic music. So here's a question from uh, Jamie Harford. Um, you mentioned a distinct lack of diversification of genres and how they no longer apply to classifying the music that's created today. We've seen hip hop grow through variations that has resulted in, in classifications like grime or drill. What can the industry, and especially the platforms such as Spotify, do to help audiences better classify the variety of genres that have been created and consumed today? I mean, I would actually add a little thing on there, Jamie. Do we actually need these classifications? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting because grime is a, it's almost one of the last sort of examples of something coming from within a scene that creates, that suggests there's a scene. And it took a long time to break through because all, it, in many ways it was so unrock, it was so unpop, it, it, it didn't it didn't have the usual shapes and positions that the, the mainstream is used to dealing with. So it took a long time to come through. And then when it did, it had to have personalities, it had to have faces. Um, but I think, I think what I'm searching for in terms of the spotification, the even the title, uh, the YouTube music, is I guess what I'm looking for is I understand why they curate it the way they do. It's a very polite curation. It's rooted in the, in the categories of the, the 20th century. Everything's sort of put in its own box. I guess what I would always be looking for is something that creates much more of the kind of fluidity, the interaction, the interconnectivity, the new, the new ways of describing some of the, this music, the new way of presenting the playlists that, that is about, about this situation we're in rather than trying to sort of somehow keep alive a, a series of dead systems like the charts like those categories, like saying that this only belongs there. I, I, it's possibly impossible. One of the things I, I noticed as I was trying to suggest things in a practical way, they all apparently were impossible. But I feel out of the impossibility, there must come something where the way Spotify presents the, all this music, that, that, it, that it's basically gathered into its storehouse, which, which poses all sorts of problems to our mental health and the environment and all sorts of reasons why it's not necessarily a good thing as much as it's divine because all the magic is there. I think what might help it become something a bit more human as opposed to kind of, to an extent, just almost just a private place of, 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 of where we go to get our music is an equivalent of, of how, you know, the great critics over time 
the great myth makers have, have, have taken hold of the music and given it something else. And, and I think sometimes I believe that might come with the way it's written about all of the views on Spotify and, and, and uh, YouTube and Tidal are very nice and tidy and informative. But I think it, for me, it needs something more than that, because that almost seems to be just settling it in place, almost putting it into a corner, letting it stay where it is. So that the, the, there's not much kind of superficial liveliness that goes on. There's not much surface sort of strangeness. It's just a, a big amount of music put into a box, into a playlist, and here you are. Uh, and I, I suppose what I'm looking for is a way that out of that, what impact is that going to have on music makers if that's where they think their music ends up? because it's not necessarily just to end up in a vast library. It's not necessarily the best place for it to end up because it seems to bypass the, the interactions, the desires, the need of an audience. And I know at the moment that's particularly relevant because we're all isolated from direct live venues, from directly communicating with each other. But in a way, that was the lesson of this year, in a way. That may well have been where we were heading anyway. And Spotify, et cetera, were telling us that. You know, we're, we're separating you from each other, but look, you'll have access to all this. Isn't this wonderful? Yeah, it is on it in itself, but wouldn't it be also great to have something within it that carries forward in, into this new world, uh, a sense of why previously music has come with all these other elements? Uh, I, I think it's there. I can't explain it very well, but I think mm. it's there somewhere, you know. I like those ideas, and that leads us on to the next two questions. Go on the next question from AP Charles. Hello, Andrew. Does the size of the delivery vehicle in classical music, the full-size orchestra, replace the need for visual imagery, which is fair to say what popular music relies heavily on, especially in the last 40, 50 years? Safety in numbers, perhaps? Well, it is interesting that the, the image of pop was, was, was an important part of pop and the context and everything, the photography, the, the live performance, the, the image of the, the act and the way that they presented themselves, and classical didn't have any of that. Uh, and, and even though it seems unwieldy, the orchestra seems, oddly enough, to just carry on down the river uh, that it's been following all the time, uh, whereas somehow pop and rock seems to be coming to a border, uh, or a series of borders, and you do need some weird paperwork to get through, the kind of paperwork you used to think you needed to get into classical music. I, think, I don't know if I'm answering the question right, but I do feel that I, f I found that I was having a more modern experience conjuring up... Um, uh, Sostakovich on my mobile phone than I was conjuring up Cardi B or something. You know, that seemed obvious and that seemed to be part of the mobile phone in a way. You know, it was music made on machines that I was listening to on a machine. Fine. But, uh, but the, the other, the, 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 the Sostakovich on a mobile phone seemed a miracle. It seemed holy, seemed uncanny. And, and I guess, rightly or wrongly, that was again at the centre of the spirit of the book, trying to say, actually, this is, this is quite a contemporary, weird, modern experience. To ha it was never meant for this, but oddly enough, what we found with classical music was never meant for a lot of the things that came along that it then became part of. Never meant for records. It was never meant for television or radio, mm. but, it, but, it, but, it, but it made it to it. Rock music, pop music, hip hop, all of these were part of television records. That's what they were made for. So I was kind of intrigued on what, what's flung into the next stage where, you know, what is a pop record made for now? It's not made for a seven inch. It's not made for a compact disc. It's, it's got no surface. I guess that's why the most kind of relevant seeming home for pop music seemed TikTok. Because I could never understand now in this new world why a pop song now didn't, it, it could be 30 seconds. Because there was no need for it to be three minutes anymore because it wasn't a seven inch vinyl. And I was intrigued that the, the, the length wasn't changing with the new systems. And I guess TikTok slightly changed it. It just boiled everything down to the chorus and you didn't need anything else. <laughs> yeah. It was the ultimate destination of pop music, you know. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a fantastic point. And the final question, which is um, actually that last point, he would have, he would have loved that question, as well, that, that statement as well. Uh, what happened, and we still won't call him Anthony, will we? What, Mark Ewell wants to know, what happened to the Tony Wilson book? Yeah, the Tony Wilson book is written. Um, it, there is, um, there is a, a world where the Tony Wilson book um, uh, will be published. It's, I, I guess there's a certain COVID delay. There's a certain delay uh, that it's gone into a groove that it needs to um, wait for. Um, more practically, one of the things that I, I felt, found very important about the book was that it, the, the, factory, the new factory building in Manchester. Um, uh, it may be foolish, but, but it took, the, the book has taken so long to write that I thought I might as well wait for the, to see what happens with that building, basically. 
because mm. that seems to be, you know, uh, Tony, uh, as I always thought, was slipping back into the 20th century in the way that the great industrialists slipped back into the 19th century and takes on a different shape. So it, I'm not using this as a reason why the book's been delayed or I don't think consider it being delayed, you know. But uh, what's interesting is that the, the idea of Tony Wilson changes shape as we move further into the 21st century. And at one point that did mean that I occasionally stopped because I thought, no, hang on, this is a different world for Tony to be in. I need to write a different, a different sense of Tony because now he's, he's a different character. And then that led to um, the idea that I was watching the delay of the building of the factory uh, in Manchester. And I thought, well, that's, that's, that's happening with my book as well. There's a sort of parallel delays in a way. So the book is finished, and I guess it just needs um, that particular ending to be applied as well, which suggests to me it'll, be, it'll probably be around next year, I think, because, you know. The building's another two years. I, I sort of got pushed back a little bit further, yeah, so you've got a bit, bit more it time. It's been pulled back, but in a way, you know, if I, if I push back the Wilson book another two years, the only question I will get asked in things like this is, what's happened to the Tony Wilson book? So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I, I didn't think it would be delayed another two years, but I did notice that this week and I thought, oh, there you go. You know, I'm hanging on for, for in a, a classic Wilsonian sense. I'm hanging on for the building of a building that's costing 50, 60 million quid. You know, I, I, I better make sure that the ending doesn't end when that because that won't appear in two years either. So let's say the Wilson must be built and I, I, I won't promise, but I will suggest and recommend and strongly hint it will be built uh, this time next year. Brilliant. Well, thanks a lot, Paul. Thanks for your Thank time. You, John. Thank you, John. Yeah, Thank you really much. enjoyed that.